good day. I would like to say how glad I am to see each one of you here today. And I trust that as we gather together and keep keep time reading about the Word of God, that each one will be strengthened in the God's things. My desire for each one of you is that you be drawn closer to the Lord and that if you are unsaved at this time, that even through these readings, you will come to know the Lord as your personal Savior, accept him as the Savior of your life. I would like to give a little bit of my history. I was born in a Christian home and accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior at the age of seven. A number of years later, I was baptized by immersion and became a member of the local church. I have continued on fellowshipping with them through many years, and I have learned much of the things of God through my association with, with godly brethren and sisters and the teaching which they have given me. I owe them much. The word of God tells us to forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is one of our responsibilities as brethren and sisters in Christ to those with whom we gather. Paul also told Timothy to study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And as we look into, into the scriptures, I trust that the word of truth will be rightly divided, taken in its proper context, and in the meaning in which it is, it is meant. We trust that we will not use it for any ulterior purpose other than what the Spirit of God has planned for us. I am going to be reading from a number of works of an individual whom I know very well and who has given me permission to read uh, from, his, from his works. I am going to be starting with one which is currently published and available through, through Amazon. It is entitled, uh, The Gospel According to John 3.16 by Joseph John Bowman. The verse John 3.16 is doubtless the best-known verse in the whole of the Bible. People, people know it, people quote it, who aren't even aware that it comes out of the Scriptures. God has used this verse in many ways, and he has used it mightily. As we read, read this, this book... Let us keep in mind that what is, what is being spoken on is the word of God and not the teachings of man.
I wanted to want to start uh, with with the preface in this book. John three sixteen is the best known verse in the Bible. Every child who has ever been to Sunday school has heard it. Most have memorized it at one time or another. I know that because I was one of those children. From my youngest years, I had the Bible read to me, and I learned all the leading Bible stories. As a family, we spent time around the breakfast table, memorizing verses and passages from the Bible. Almost the first verse I learned to say by heart was John 3.16. In time, I, along with my brother and sisters, learned the whole chapter by heart. The message in it is timeless. We will never tire of its majesty and grace. One of the first memories I have of it was when I was about five or six. In the Sunday school I attended, there was a contest. We were to learn and be able to say correctly all the books of the Bible. As the first one to say them, I won a plaster text with the verse John 3.16 carved on it. That text hung on the wall of my bedroom for many years. It was impressed on my memory, and I learned the account of the interview the Lord Jesus had with Nicodemus by heart. It became an essential part of my young life as I came to realize the necessity of the new birth. I learned that there was only one way for that to be accomplished, and it was through the message given in this verse. It had an indelible impact on me, and that impression has remained to this day. It has had an impression on the majority of believers. There is hardly a gospel meeting when this verse is not quoted. There are many verses that preachers of the gospel use frequently. However, there is none that is quoted more often than this verse. I know that because I have used it myself in almost every message I have preached. God has used this verse in the salvation of countless souls. If there were no other verses given to us, we would be without excuse, for this verse tells us of the way of salvation. Even a child can understand that God has made a way whereby they might be saved. It is not complicated and needs not for us to perform any great work and change our way of life. All we need to do is believe. It does not take a lot of intelligence or significant knowledge of the Bible to understand the message given here. I was recently reminded of a preacher of the gospel who during one of his campaigns spoke for three weeks on John 3.16. On being asked why, his response was, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 We can never speak too many times on this verse, because the message will never come to an end while the day of grace lasts. It is the plan of God that everyone be saved. 
while the offer is to all, the good of the verse is only for those who believe the message given therein. Make sure that you are one of those who believe, not one of those who believes not. As you read it, take the simplicity of the message fight to yourself and believe in that one of whom it speaks. Then and only then will you become recipients of the gift of eternal life. You will then be born again and be called a child of God. Read it and trust in the one of whom it speaks for your eternal salvation. Introduction John 3.16 is the verse used, most used by gospel preachers and has been called the gospel in a nutshell. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the miniature gospel. While there are only 25 words in this verse, uh, there is not any single verse that God has used more in the salvation of souls. The word gospel means good news. It tells us that in a world filled with bad news, the God of heaven has a message filled with good news for you and me. We need to believe it as our own. While reading this paper, realize that this good news is a gift that God offers to all of us. Not only is this gift offered to all of us, but we individually have to recognize that it is offered to me. Paul said that it is unto all and upon all them that believe. Romans 3 and 22. No one is excluded from this offer of salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 and 13. All we have to do is take it, and then it will be ours. Notice that this verse begins with God and ends with life. This is because all life begins with God as its source. He alone is life eternal. Few verses state so concisely God's gift to man, man's responsibility, and her eternal end than this verse does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 There is a poem given to help explain what this verse means. It is by an unknown author. For God, the Lord of earth and heaven, so loved and longed to see forgiven the world in sin and pleasure mad, that he gave the only son he had, his only son to take our place, that whosoever, oh what grace, believes placing simple trust in him the righteous and the just should not perish lost in sin, but have everlasting life in him. In the introduction to this paper, I want to remind you of the following children's chorus by an unknown author. Reading it, seek to apply the truth to yourself. Twenty-five words, 
in John 3.16, no greater gift has ever been seen. Twelve about God and twelve about me. Son in the center, verse 16, John 3. That whosoever surely means me, surely means me, surely means me. That whosoever surely means me, surely means even me. It means you as plainly as it meant me the night I accepted him as the Lord and Savior of my life in November 1962. The promise that was true for me then is just as true for you today. I believed in him and now have everlasting life with him. It is as sure as if I was already in heaven with him, and I know that one day I will be. If you believe that he died for you, the same thing will be able to be said about your eternal destination. Trust him now as your Lord and Savior before you read another word for his name's sake and the sake of your immortal soul. That is all it takes and you will be saved and saved forever. We know this because we are told all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John six thirty seven. We have the guarantee of God himself from the mouth of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11 and 28. Do you desire the rest that only God can give? If so, come unto him. He has promised to give it to you. That is the message of the gospel. Hear it today. Thank you very much. And next time, we'll start with uh, chapter 1. God bless. I would like to start by welcoming everyone back again today. We're very glad to have you with us. And we trust that as we read further the Word of God, that more truths will be made known to us. We started with the verse John 3.16. I'm reading from the Gospel according to John 3.16. The verse, the most well-known one in the Bible, tells us, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We will start with chapter 1. The title is For. The word for means because in the way it is used in this place. The word tells us of a relationship between events that occurred in the past to that which we are dealing with in the present. It gives us a frame of reference to deal with as we look at the subject in the passage before us. As we look at what is to come, we need to recognize the emphasis in John 3.16 is because of what came before. The account starts with the life of the Lord Jesus. We need to look at it to understand what is in this verse. In John chapter 1, he had been declared the Word. 
He was the communication of God to humanity. He declared the mind of God to sinful man. He was the one who created all things. That was only possible because he was God and ever dwelt with God. He was able to give life to that which had no life because in him was life and the life was the light of man. John 1 and 4. One of the big puzzles in science is how life could have arrived out of a lifeless universe. They have examined our chemical makeup. They made a study of our DNA and RNA complexes and did not come to any conclusions as to their source. They do not understand how life could have been produced, especially in all of the different forms we find. Our world is teeming with life, from elementary forms to the more complex. Science has tried to find ways whereby life could have arisen from a collection of proteins in the early oceans. Somehow in the midst of all the confusion and violence of those supposed days, life and all its complexity arose. They say it started as a simple amoeba and became more complicated as it arose to the forms we have today. It is a fallacy since we now know that what science once referred to as the simplest forms of life are now recognized as being as complicated as any other form. Some of these life forms are now known to be more complicated than some of those that we regard more highly. All life from the simplest to the most complex is dependent on the double helix, otherwise known as our DNA. In itself, it is so involved that we can barely understand how it works, let alone how it was formed in the first place. The only explanation for it all is there to be an intelligent force behind the creation and formation of it all. As we witness the various ways that science has tried to answer this uh, question, we have only one answer to give them. It is found in this verse and this person. The Lord Jesus was and is the source of all life. There is no life without him. He is the life of the world, for he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is no need to investigate its source any further, because the answer is in our Bible. He is the one of whom it was said, He is God manifest in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 Not only was this one who was the communication from God, the life which came into the world, but we are told that he lived among us. Before he came, God knew that that one who was his beloved son would be rejected. His people would reject him. The very world that he had created turned against him. Reading this, we are amazed that he humbled himself and came into this world. However, we have the promise that those who believe in him become the sons of God. 
God has given him the authority to bring us who were enemies into this position. What a marvel that this privilege has been given to us, the sons of Adam's race. Not only is he our creator and the life of this world, but John tells us of his mission. John proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1.27 He is the Lamb who came to be the one who took away our sins in his own body on the tree. 1 Peter 2.24 He was God's sacrifice for sin. Looking back at the history of the nation of Israel, we are impressed with the number of sacrifices offered over the years. Tens of thousands of lambs were slain, as well as many other offerings on Jewish altars. Solomon offered sacrifices to the Lord. After he finished building the temple of the Lord, the nation was sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told or numbered for multitude. 1 Kings 8.5 A historical point of interest is that a count was done of all the lambs offered at Passover time, about 30 years after the crucifixion. The number was over a quarter of a million. It was said that the bed of the gully of the stream, stream Kidron ran red with blood. Priests offered sacrifices day and night uh, c- continually to be able to keep up with the offerings given. The number of sacrifices was inconceivable as we look back on the vastness of the numbers in all the years past. As well, there were, was a massive amount of money spent on them. See note further on. However, there was a weakness in the offerings, for they were unable to finish the work that they pictured to the nation. As a result, their sins still needed to be forgiven. The offerings were only a picture of the work our Lord was able to finish on the cross. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they have offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Hebrews 10, 1-4 There was from then on only one sacrifice for sin, and he was the one who was the Lamb of God. Not only was he the Lamb of God, whose coming was to be the sacrifice for our sins, but John the Baptist also said concerning him, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, John 1.36. John looked at him, and carefully beheld him. As he did, he saw one who was not only to be the sa- our Savior, but one whom we were to follow. John saw the walk of the Lord, 
and seeing it, he beheld a life that was different from everybody else. John the Baptist was a cousin of the Lord Jesus. He was approximately six months older. He would have heard all about the miraculous conception of the Lord. Messages of, of the life of this young man would have reached him. He would have been aware that in all this, this, this one, that in this one was power and authority that no one else had. John knew through both personal experience as well as through the inspiration of God that this one came from God. The declaration from John shows us the character of John, for at that time John had a large following. John was not interested in making a name for himself. He recognized that his work was as an ambassador for someone who was more significant than he was. As John performed the work given him, he said, He who is coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it. I am not worthy to unloose. By saying this, John placed himself in the position of the most humble slave in the service, in the service of his master. Even the humblest of servants would have rebelled against that service. However, John accepted that he was not even worthy of such a place. We must wonder at the humility seen in the life of John the Baptist. A picture of the humbleness of this place is seen in John 13. The Lord Jesus took the place of the humblest of servants by washing his disciples' feet. They recognized the place he took. Peter initially refused to allow the Lord to wash his feet. John took this place of humility before the Lord, whom he acknowledged as his master. John, when asked about the service of the Lord Jesus and how it put his work into a minor position, said the following, he must increase, but I must decrease, John 3.30. The final statement of John tells us who this one of whom John was speaking is. He said, and I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John 1.34. He knew that the one whom he was serving as a messenger was far superior to him. That was the one whom John declared to those around him as the Lamb of God. He is the one whom John told his followers to follow. John was not looking for a follower. He was directing those whom he influenced to follow Christ. The Lord Jesus showed his appreciation for the work, of, for the work John did, as he said, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Matthew 11, 10 to 11. 
After that incident, there were those who followed Jesus. They made up the core, which became first his disciples and later his apostles. At the beginning of John chapter 2, we have the Lord and his disciples at a wedding. It was there he performed his first miracle, the changing of water to wine. By so doing, he placed a stamp of endorsement on the ordinance of marriage. It is sad that it needs saying that it is a marriage between a man and a woman that was the original form and the only one that God recognizes. Following the events at the wedding, he and his disciples went down to Jerusalem to keep the Passover. While there, he went into the temple and cleansed it from the traitors and money changers. He declared that his father's house was a holy place where all the activities were to be entirely for God. At that time, the Jewish leaders used events like the Passover as an opportunity to make money. Because many people came from foreign lands, they could not bring sacrifices with them. As a result, they would have to buy from vendors who sold to the public. However, there was another problem. In, in coming to Jerusalem, they, they did not have the currency of Israel. But it had to be the ship. It was, it was not only the accepted currency of Israel, but it had to be the shekel of the temple. They needed an exchange board to change their money into a currency that would be recognized and accepted during their time in Israel. There was much abuse of those traveling because of this need. As a result, money changers and tax collectors were among the most despised of all who lived in Jerusalem. Because of the proximity to where everyone was going, the court of the temple was used for these purposes. Unfortunately, this situation led to significant abuses of those who came to worship. They were given less in exchange than they should have received on a regular basis. As well, they were often sold in inferior grades of animals for an exorbitant price. One other aspect of the selling and trading in the temple was that it was all controlled and regulated by the priestly families. It was well known that the family of Caiaphas owned large flocks of sheep, which supplied the herds in the temple. Caiaphas was the high priest, and his family inherited the high priestly position due to his relationship with the Romans. These priests were responsible for the acceptance of perfect animals brought before them. Because of that, they were often rejected, and sometimes numerous times, before a perfect animal was found. By this, as well as other means, the priestly families were enriched. It was also well known and accepted that they controlled the money changers and other aspects of change in the temple. It was either done directly done 
or through charging exorbitant rates for permission to trade in their premises. The chief aim was to make money, and the aim was to enrich themselves and gain power as well as wealth. The things of God and His holiness hardly entered into their consideration at all. His honesty was rampant among all who participated in, in these activities. On top of all, of it all, of the dishonesty, were the noise and confusion caused by the trading and large mobs of people involved. There was the noise caused by the animals with all their smells. In the midst of all this confusion, the people sought to get the best bargains for their money. At the same time, the merchants were trying to make as much money as they could. It was an ungodly display of the marketplace and all entailed in it. These actions put a negative reputation on any worship in the temple and on the name of God. That was why the Lord Jesus purged the temple. His actions were to remove all the commercial and confusion from God's house. Unfortunately, the temple, which was supposed to be where, where God was worshipped, and all the reverence due to his name, was now a place similar to the activities of the marketplace. It showed the attitude that dealt wealth in the hearts of the nation at that time. Declaring his relationship to his father in the temple, our Lord gave the first statement that he was come to lay down his life. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.19 While those around him thought he was speaking about Herod's temple, he was speaking about his coming death and resurrection. At the end of this chapter, many believed in him because of the miracles that he did. Sadly, we see an indictment of the hearts of humanity. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. John 2, 24 and 25. However, when we come to John chapter 3, there was hope. The chapter in the original starts with the word but. It tells us that what was to follow was in direct contrast to what had immediately preceded. The verses above show a condition that seemed to be hopeless. However, there was were those who would believe in him. Nicodemus is an example of an honest seeker. We know that those who are seeking the Savior will find him. He has promised to find those who seek him. So it was with Nicodemus. In this chapter, there is a man who came to Jesus by night. When it was, he came as immaterial. The important thing is he came. It is not for us to criticize when or how a person comes to the Savior. We need to glorify God, that one who is lost is seeking him who would be their savior. The Lord Jesus told Nicodemus immediately of the need he had. He needed a new birth. Nicodemus was confused. 
and asked the Lord questions dealing with how he could be born again. The Lord Jesus said he was speaking about a spiritual birth. He said that while we need to be born physically first to enter into heaven, we must be born again. John 3 and 3. It is important to note here that the new birth is a must for anyone to enter into heaven. It is not left up to your discernment or opinion. There are only two choices. In that way, there are only two possible ends for each, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.15 With this background, we now come to what the Lord Jesus is telling us in John 3.16. We will, in coming days, look at the further chapters in this book. We'll start next time with chapter 2, entitled, A God of Love. Thank you, and may God bless you. The next chapter is chapter 3, and it is entitled, The Physical World, God Made It. And as we look at, at this world, the world that we, we live upon, that we walk on, the universe in which we dwell. Let us bear in mind the wonders of it all, that Almighty God made it with but a word and controls it with the word of his power. In the next three chapters, we will look at how God sees this world. The world is brought before us in three different ways in the scriptures. We will start with the physical world. In the first verse of the Bible, we are told, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Genesis 1 and 1. That was the start of everything, dealing with this earth, the universe, and humanity who lives in it. Before that time, there was no time. And the only ones occupying eternity were God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have the, his essential power in Godhead brought before us by the words of Paul on Mars Hill in Athens. He said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath, and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the earth. Acts 17, 24-26 God, who made everything, we see and experience does not need our expertise or input into how things ought to work. We have no ability that is needed by God to aid him in the running or upkeep of this universe because God is the one who made it. Before he did, he planned every aspect of it in his chamber. 
First, we will look at the work of God, the Father, in creation of all things. The name God tells us of the Supreme God. He is Lord over heaven and earth. We have his work telling us of the greatness of his Son. God says that in the creation of this world, all things were done by him through his Son. God is telling us how he communicated his will to humanity. He said, He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Hebrews 1 and 2. That the Father worked in the creation of this world is beyond contradiction. However, not only did the Father work, but his Son did as well. John tells us of this truth about our Lord as he starts his gospel. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1 and 3. He not only worked in the creation of this world, but he is maintaining it to this day. The writer to the Hebrews told us of him, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1 and 3. In all his mighty power and glorious being, he not only was the creator of all, but he upholds it in its present state. Thirdly, and in every way as importantly, the Holy Spirit worked in our creation. We are told that the world was in an unlivable condition. It was then the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Without going into too much detail, I want to make clear that when this world was created and all things therein, it was done in the unbroken fellowship of the Godhead. God never works independently of either the Son or the Spirit. Every decision made was and is in complete agreement with one another. So it was in the creation of all things. Humanity has spent billions and billions of dollars and untold years of study and investigation trying to determine our origins. The most common consensus is that we developed from an unknown form of primitive life that lived and grew in a primeval sea. Somehow, despite all the obstacles and difficulties, it grew and multiplied. For that to happen, it needed to reproduce. Without going into all the details, of human, humanity's guesses for the beginning of life on planet Earth. We come to the next stages in development. Life, because of its marvelous ability to thrive and conquer, survived. They assume that there came into being a multitude of life forms and types. Some are thought to have lived for extremely long periods and flourished while others completely disappeared from the fossil records and we know nothing about them. We can only surmise their existence. 
it is felt that during all this growth expansion, life on Earth was threatened on several occasions with mass extinctions. They say life was almost wiped out on many of these events. Through all of this supposition, we have eras when dinosaurs roamed the Earth and the primitive forms of humanity took place. Through all of humanity's theories, it all comes down to what Charles Darwin called the survival of the fittest. In that scenario, only the fittest survive, while the rest are destroyed. None of it gives any place or recognition to the God who created it all. These theories are all a result of chance. Because of that, man is not accountable to himself and, and greater and to anyone greater than himself. In the end, he is the, the peak of all, what is referred to as the evolutionary ladder. They say that this pattern of evolution is continuing to this day. It is thought that it that it is a combination of both microevolution as well as macroevolution. In a coming day, there will be forms of life evolved that are superior to what we see today. However, none of them will be accountable to God. That is because humanity claims that God is not responsible for any of them coming into being. Science is trying to delve the depths of space to learn our origin. They feel if they can go back to the moment of what is called the Big Bang, we will be able to see far enough into time to witness the first milliseconds of time before the universe began to expand to the point it is now. Through studies allowed by instruments like the Halley Telescope, we are now able to view this universe more clearly than was ever possible before. In a short period, we will be sending the James Webb Telescope into space. It is expected to have a far greater ability to see further back into space with a far higher resolution and clearness. Astrophysicists state that the further we can see into space, the further we can see into the past. They hope one day to be able to see right to the beginning of time itself. We then will know where we came from. From that, we will be able to deduce where we are going. Humanity feels that through their intelligence and ability, they have replaced the need for God. As an answer to the pride and arrogance of man, Paul told us, the world by wisdom knew not God. 1 Corinthians 1 and 21. They think they are gods over their destiny and entirely responsible for what lies ahead. What a farce this whole exercise is. It is a futile effort to put God out of their lives. Humanity hopes that through their wisdom and knowledge, they will be able to replace God. 
By so doing, they will have made themselves more knowledgeable than their Creator. Unfortunately for them, it will not work. Solomon, who was the wisest man on the earth, said, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14 and 12. Man's ways end in death and destruction. Turn to the one who is in control of everything. His power and control are seen from the start of our Bible to the end. The first verse in our Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He who created all things is the same one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John 14 and 6. As we close this section, I will leave with the words of the Apostle Paul. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 19-21 since God has promised that this is the end of those who vaunt their wisdom without God, why should we trust anything they say that contradicts the word of God? He will have the final word and not man. As we have just finished this, this chapter on the physical world, we need to, to keep in mind and appreciate the blessings that God has given us to live here, to dwell upon this earth, to partake of all its beauties and glories, all the riches of his grace in this earth. At the time of the creation of Adam and Eve, God placed Adam in the position of a steward over this earth, to watch over it, to till it, to take care of it. And as, as, as stewards of the grace of God, this is part of our right responsibility to watch over this earth. But at the same time, we need to be careful that we do not allow this earth to become our Lord and Master over us. The earth is given to us as our servant to fulfill our needs. And as we, as we live here, let us partake of all that this earth has to give us in a responsible manner, but in a manner that gives thanks to a holy God, recognizing that he is the one
who gave us all things. James would tell us that God sends his rain on the just and on the unjust, on the good and on the evil. God's blessings will fall, fall upon all, all humanity. And as we look upon this earth, Paul tells the Romans that no matter what their condition is, that they are without excuse before a holy God. Just seeing this earth, this world, all the beauties and complexities of it, all the marvels in this universe, tells us that there is a God. Mankind's denying the existence of God doesn't make it so. All it does is make make humanity feel that they are greater than the God who is in control, who created them. We trust that, that as we continue on, as we, we live upon this earth, that we will do so in recognition of the goodness and greatness of God, the God, the God who created us, the God who gave us all things. Thank him, thank him for it. In our next session, we will be going into, into the human world, the human world that God loves. I trust that this will be a time, a time where you have not only learned truths of the word of God, but these truths will take, take root in our hearts and make us more determined, more able, more capable in serving him, in worshiping him, in praising him. For in the end, that is the plan of God for, for all of us. Solomon said at the end of Ecclesiastes, is serve God and worship him. For this is the full duty of man. May God bless everyone this evening. Thank you.